Good evening, everyone. Last week, we went through some big changes in the understanding of what causes diseases, but that is just one part of public health. This week, we're going to now talk about the changes in how public health was administrated from the 1500s to the 1700s, which is in many ways just as important as knowing the science. The greatest change of this time period was the emergence of larger, more powerful, more modern states, with much more centralized national government and intentional policies. There also came to be an understanding that a country needed many people, and not only people, but productive and therefore at least healthy-ish people, to accomplish the goals of the state. It's perhaps a bit cynical, but if such motivations result in better health of people, I'm still for it. William Petty of England, a doctor, economist, and scientist, was one of the earliest supporters of this idea that healthy populations should be considered an important matter by countries. He urged the collection of national data on the population like education, diseases, incomes, and many other topics. Petty, though, was only able to use averages as far as math goes, and very often he did not have good data, but tried to estimate from known numbers. A friend of Petty's was able to innovate even further. John Grount took a look at the numbers of deaths in London and across England, and tied them to certain other data. He noted that deaths were often proportional to the number of burials, which makes sense. He also pointed out that the proportion of males and females was nearly even. This stuff may sound like a no-brainer to us, but up to this point it hadn't really been measured and investigated at a high level. Grount also examined the ratio of births and deaths in cities, and noticed that urban death rates were higher than rural death rates. And he also pointed out that death rates are seasonal. Certain seasons have more people dying than others. Again, not super impressive from a modern perspective. But again, keep in mind that all this is groundbreaking at the time. No burial pun intended. Finally, Grant created the first life table, which really I think should be called a death table, which shows at each year of age the approximate risk of death. These are commonly used these days in epidemiology or biology or many other fields, but at the time was a new idea. Back then, they actually didn't see a ton of scientific use, at least not immediately, but as per usual where there's money to be made, somebody will try. Within a generation of Grant's death, life tables were being used by businessmen to create the first life insurance companies. Grant, Petty, and others were pioneers in the idea that we should be tracking public health with statistics, but that alone would not do much for public health. Knowing how and why people are dying accomplishes very little if you don't use that information to stop some of that dying. Again, though, it was around this time that politicians began to see a healthy population as vital for their state, which naturally leads to the idea of national health policies. Petty, again, was a pioneer here as well during his life. He noticed that transmittable diseases and infant mortality were huge problems as far as healthy population goes. In England, for example, about 12% of babies died in their first year of life, which of course is a massive humanitarian tragedy, but also if you're a cynical politician trying to increase your labor resources, that's also a lot of workers and soldiers that you're missing out on. Petty saw the problems, but also acknowledged we did not yet have solutions, and so instead recommended that fostering medical progress should be a major priority for the state. He repeatedly stressed the importance of developing hospitals, especially hospitals that trained and taught new doctors. Beyond these general recommendations, Petty made some very specific ones too. He proposed the construction of new hospitals, including for general use, 
some specifically for plague victims, and even some specifically for maternity to help combat those high death rates of babies. To convince those in power these were worthwhile, he estimated the economic toll of the bubonic plague, a new concept but certainly one that feels relevant right now in the era of the novel coronavirus. Petty also realized that doing all of this would require tons of medical personnel, and so proposed that Grounce methods be used to estimate the number of doctors, surgeons, and other personnel that would be needed to take care of everyone adequately. Petty was by no means the only one thinking up ways governments could help the health of their people. Particularly of note to me was John Bellers, who put forth a plan for a national health service in England back in 1714. He argued in an essay that illness and early death are a waste of human resources, and that individual people aren't, unfortunately, consistent enough to prevent the spread of disease. As such, he advocated for the construction of laboratories and hospitals to conduct research, to provide healthcare, and even provide healthcare specifically to the poor. Unfortunately, despite many great ideas from these great thinkers, not much really happened. Implementation of these ideas would have required a strong centralized government, which is in the works, we'll say, at this time in England. There was this little thing we call the English Revolution, which resulted in several decades of fighting, an executed king, and basically an absolute mess of government for a long time. Great thinkers with similar ideas were elsewhere as well. In what we'd now call Germany, a number of great thinkers had similar ideas. Veit Ludwig von Seckendorf proposed a government health program to ensure adequate medical personnel, protect against contagious disease, maintain hospitals, and even inspect food and water and prevent excessive consumption of tobacco and alcohol. Another German named Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz, a philosopher, scientist, and politician who I think we've actually mentioned on the podcast before, stressed the importance of getting statistics on the population and death rates. Unfortunately, on mainland Europe, there was also very little action taken, despite many great ideas being floated around. It's a bit anticlimactic, I know, but we're laying the groundwork here for great ideas to be implemented in the future. That's not to say that nothing changed. The English government issued national plague orders throughout the 1600s and 1700s, an early example of national-level public health action. In Prussia, a board of health was established to investigate public health matters on behalf of the state, Prussia also began tracking the numbers of births, deaths, and marriages starting in 1688, an example of early attempts to track public health statistics by governments. At the end of the 1600s, France began to survey their population, but unfortunately these states just did not have the administrative know-how to make these great ideas happen. Public health issues, for the most part, continued to be tackled on a local basis, which of course severely limits effectiveness. Some stuff at a local level has changed, though. Next week, probably our last episode in these few centuries, we'll talk about some of the specific changes to how public health was administered at that local level. We'll talk about cleanliness and water and medical care, and improvements made since the medieval times in getting all those things out. As always, thanks to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, Muse Open for our music, and to you for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating, or just tell a friend. And if you'd like to contact me, try any of the links in the show notes.